Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. You are listening to Missed Apex Podcast. We live F1. Welcome to Miss Apex Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Reddy, but my friends call me Spanners. So, let's be friends. I've got some midweek content for you, just because I had the chance to speak to two very cool people. So later in the show, we're going to catch up with Magnus Greaves from Race Weekend magazine. He is talking to us about the Vegas Grand Prix. He's doing a lot of tie-ins and promotions there. I have expressed to him in the past that I'm a little bit skeptical, cynical, don't have my expectations very, very high. Uh, but he actually taught me a lot in our in our chat earlier. There's a lot of stuff going on with the Vegas Grand Prix that I just I didn't know about. Uh, so we've got a chat with him later. But the bulk of the show. We are going to talk about what F1 can and should or shouldn't do when it comes to team domination. I'm speaking to Peter Wright, who is a a proper lawyer man, but also a big F1 enthusiast. So we take a journey through the eras and look at previous eras of domination and the consequences of that. Hi, everyone. Joining us on Missed Apex today is a proper grown-up, and it's not always just middle-aged idiots saying what they reckon. Sometimes we speak to the people that Radio 4 call up, and when Radio 4 wants to know about lawyery things, they get in touch with Peter Wright, the Managing Director of Digital Law UK. Thanks for joining us and adding some grown-upness to to the shed, Peter. Well, pleased to, I'm very pleased to be here, and hopefully I can uh, share a few thoughts on the... Um... Occasionally, I come on just to be able to look at the sort of law and uh, racing side of things and where they intersect a little bit. So whilst not being an F1 lawyer, you are just injecting a little bit of your F1 brain into a topic for us today. So what you and I were talking about was was how 
how do F1 deal with you know dominant teams and have how have they dealt with it in the past? But I'm going to ask a question that that might sound like a stupid question. Like if if it is stupid, don't be scared, Peter. Just go. No, that's a that's a dumb question. But is Formula One actually obligated to provide an exactly fair down the line competition? Like how much freedom does it have to to nerf a team? And when does that get to the point that teams you know call foul? It's it's actually a really good question, and I also share that the first thing they tell you at law school is there are no silly questions. Yeah, that's not so, true. In engineering. In engineering, they teach us there's loads of stupid questions. But in engineering, there's right and wrong, whereas there in law, there's many shades of grey. That shouldn't and be true. Which <laughs> uh, is why I'm wearing a grey shirt. Um, which, and it's an interesting point when it comes to Formula 1. Do they have, could we point to a bit in the regulations that says this should all be fair and no one yeah. should have one overriding pressing um, advantage and, and we will close the field up if anything happens? No, that isn't in there in black and white. But we can certainly see from the way that the FIA have approached regulation of Formula One over the last 30 years that certainly they have the objective of trying to make sure that no one team uh, ever sort of disappears into the distance with the sort of crushing advantage that means that it's going to be um, the same team and potentially the same driver winning year in, year out. And um, there are quite a few examples of where they've taken sometimes quite radical steps to uh, to try and draw one team back into the pack, back into um, uh, to, to take away what has sometimes been uh, some quite big advantages that we've seen. Certainly, what we're seeing with Red Bull and Max Verstappen now, yes, there's a significant advantage there and a level of domination. But we have been here in F1 yeah. before. So, I mean, from a sort of a moral sporting point of view, Verstappen and Red Bull's dominance is. It's almost it's, it's irrelevant. You know, you run the laws of the game and teams apply the best talent they can and one team comes out on top. So, you know, we, didn't Celtic win the Scottish Premier League something like 11 seasons in a row? It, it happens in sport. Yeah. So, so firstly, I guess, like, it's purely down to opinion. You know, should you nerf a team that's running away with it? Again, a, a good question uh, because... Ultimately, yeah, and particularly in Formula One, you do get this sort of cyclical periods of domination with one team or perhaps two teams um, being well ahead of the rest for reasons of anything from the engines that they've had, bits of technology that they've had um, that have sometimes meant that they've had an appreciable advantage, sometimes in terms of resources um, as well. When you, for example, look at McLaren and Ferrari in the, in the sort of late 90s, early 2000s, there was no one else really had quite such massive resources um, to, um, to to throw at getting to the front of the grid and, and staying there, which, which could, partially yeah. has then its roots flowing back to where we are now in terms of trying to have equivalence of resources through the cost cap. Um, but that seems to be turning into a really complex way of <laughs> yeah. trying to regulate performance. But I think as well, we have to bear in mind that what we're seeing from Red Bull, you have to see it at the moment as a demonstration of certainly engineering um, perfection, almost the sheer level of reliability to have a car that will not break down or show um, the sort of race ending performance problems that you used to see so frequently in the past, um, or certainly be able to do that you know, for more than 10 races and have nothing go wrong. Then it comes down to the race preparation and the fact they're turning up. They're surprised if it's not on pole. They're surprised mm. if they aren't then 
not just winning, but winning at a counter and controlling the race means that you've got a level of team performance there built around a driver operating at the top of his game. At the moment, I think the only person that can probably beat Max Verstappen is Max Verstappen. And while he's currently in the the form that he's in, it just simply doesn't look like mm. that's going to happen. No. Uh, by the way, I'll add Mercedes to your list of you know teams that had massive resources. I think it gets forgotten that that they had like over a thousand employees compared to other teams running several hundred. So yeah, Mercedes period of domination wasn't just down to the engine formula, uh, the engine formula and, and turning up with, um, with that engine advantage. They also really did have a huge army of staff as well. And actually that, that period of domination, whilst they weren't you know, maybe crushing as consistently race in, race out as say Sebastian Vettel late 2013 or Max Verstappen now, although it wasn't far away, the length of that sustained domination is why right. that particular period kind of hurt F1 and and made people go, no, we really do need to do something. Um, so I thought it might be fun, because you've done a, a great deal of prep here, uh, to go through these examples of, of previous domination and what the FIA kind of did, and then that'll help us get to a conclusion to whether they should you know, do anything now. Uh, should we start with Williams? Yes. So if we look at sort of Williams in the early 90s, they, in a, in, and this was totally because they were taking on what was at the time the behemoth of McLaren, very well resourced, um, incredible drivers in the shape of um, Alain Prost and Ayrton Senna. They thought, well, how do we literally take the fight to them, um, yeah. particularly after Williams had lost the, the Honda engine to, to McLaren in the late 80s? So how are we going to take them on? And the answer was through engineering excellence. Um, they First of all, they built the FW14 um, for 1991, a passive oh, car, yes. brilliant aerodynamics from yeah. a young Adrian Newey. Um, ran Senna pretty close in 1991. 1992, you then get active suspension on there, uh, which pretty much gave us an advantage of almost two seconds a lap. It was a robocar. decided was, to really go for it. It was a robocar, wasn't it? It was. And um, for those who are wondering, well, hang on, this was all taking place way before I was born. There are clips and videos out there. It's of this, yeah. and, um, worth watching. There's actually a really good documentary that um, Sky have made in the UK on Williams and Mansell that documents this story. And you can see some of the engineering uh, in, in the background where they sort of show literally the fact that the car would move up and down um, by the pressing of the button. Um, and it just showed how the the suspension was not behaving in the way that we would think of a of, of a car now behaving yeah. as it goes over the bumps. It was literally, you would program the thing beforehand and it would then run around a whole circuit, um, being able to stay at an optimum level, which would, of course, change from corner to corner to chicane, from chicane to chicane. So it took a long time yeah. to perfect. But once they got it working, um, you know, the, the great Ayrton Senna in a car powered by what everyone said was the best engine, the Honda, um, was simply left over a second, a second and a half behind. Um, it was slightly different, uh, and I know that you, you talked on Mr. Apex of the weekend a little bit about sometimes you get that element of sandbagging and not wanting to necessarily yeah. show how much performance you've got in your back pocket. I think Red Bull have done a lot of that this year. They're just winning as far as they need to control the race. I think Max could probably like, lap an awful lot quicker very often if he really wanted to, and he simply hasn't had to. He's just got yeah. so far ahead, and then that's been it. Yeah, that was treated like some grand conspiracy theory, but that's definitely been been done in the past. So some of the examples we spoke about earlier, Sebastian Vettel 2013, where they were untouchable 
after they changed the tyres after the Silverstone explosions, they they won every race by about 20 seconds. So basically, Sebastian Vettel would try and pull a pit stop so that if he needed yeah. to pit, he would be safe. When Lewis Hamilton was was comfortably dominating races, he would go to about five or six seconds because that would then like cut away the virtual safety car advantage or whatever. You know, if there was something went wrong with needing to pit during a safety car, he'd have that window. So it's really, it's not strange at all, I don't think, for for, for Max Verstappen in the position he finds himself to go, no, I'm not going to go and lap the field because that, why would you? Why would you stoke the fan base and spoke and stoke the audience into taking action? But when you have something like the, the Williams active suspension car, right. that does provoke action that does make the governing body stand up and go oh we need to do we need to do something it did i mean part of it was that you had a driver like mansell who after all of his near misses three times yeah. runner up um and this was very clearly his sort of last shot um at, at being world champion um you know good com- good competitive machinery clearly no one else was going to get close to him this was the year he had to do it rather than deciding to do it in i will win each race by you know almost going as slow as you need to in order to win. Um, I think he was pretty much of the school of thought that was, I've been here for 15 years. I'm now going to show you all exactly what I can do. And he regularly <laughs> blitzed the field. Yes. <laughs> um, destroying his own teammate, Ricardo Patrese, who was, there was no slouch, but he pretty much destroyed him. A series of dominant one-twos where both Williams were virtually a lap ahead of everyone else. And at the British Grand Prix, um, I think he was almost two seconds ahead of the field in qualifying. Um, and again, almost put a whole lap on the rest of the field and broke the lap record a few times just for fun in the last few laps just to whip the crowd up that bit more um but interestingly it wasn't actually that year that the regulators decided to do something about it it was actually the following year so the following year you've then got mansell's gone patrese's gone you've got alan prost back after his sabbatical you've got damon hill his first year in competitive machinery um pretty much learning what it was to be like in a front-running vehicle the fw15c was built with active suspension and traction control and ABS integrated into the car. It would not work without it. Um, and that became quite important because mid-year, the FIA suddenly said, well, we're going to have to do something about this. Other teams had active ride by this point, McLaren, Benetton, uh, I think Ferrari as well. So certainly all, all the front runners had invested in this technology as well, but there was the fear of the cars being driven from the pit lane and it no longer being the drivers in control. Yeah. So at about the time of the German Grand Prix, they said, we're going to ban this and we're actually going to ban it from the next race. So suddenly Williams were having to break out the previous year's FW14 show cars, try and make those run on passive suspension at the same, same time as preparing their FW15Cs for um, a, a normal race weekend. The FIA relented. The old cars went back into the shop. Um, but the point was, was then it was clear it was going to be banned from the following year. And the following year, you've got the FW16, still had the Renault engine, which everyone said was the most powerful. Um, but that ended up being uh, beaten over the course of the year by um, Michael Schumacher, Benetton, with a comparatively underpowered um, Ford engine in the back. Um, but that was taking that regulatory action, and that just took away William's advantage overnight, and their passive car simply did not have yeah. the, the built-in technology and adva- advantage that the previous ones did. What What is difficult then for the FIA in that position is, when you take action like that, you're basically deciding, effectively, the championship winner. Because if you make one decision, it's a bit more open, but you, you make a, the, the decision not to ban it, you're actively, you're handing them 
the the trophy. So very hard to fend off accusations of favoritism or or you know you've been you bunged a, a Manila envelope stuff with cash. It, it seems to be the case that sometimes when you get that dominant team, it's been the case that you'll get a couple of years of dominance to sort of almost get your return on investment. I sort of say, okay, yeah. well, we'll let you clean up for a year or two, but that this will not perpetuate um, over a period into like sort of 10 years or so. Where that's then changed in more recent years is that I think it was fairly easy for the regulator. We can see you've got this wonderful gizmo on your car that's giving you this advantage. We'll ban that. And with the active suspension, you could tell quite easily if it was yeah. there or not. Traction control, they couldn't because it there was then could be masked inside the electronic control unit. And that was only properly banned for years. We won't even go into the whole, was Michael Schumacher running with traction control in 1994 or uh, Or was Vettel um, running allegedly. with it in his Red Bull as well, allegedly? Like, I, um, yes. But having the, <laughs> but they got around that eventually in 2009 by saying everyone will have the same um, electronic control unit and therefore we know that that doesn't contain traction control. So that was a more difficult thing to ban. Yeah. Um, but the point is, is that then, in other years of domination, so for example, when we had Ferrari in the early 2000s yes. and um, Red Bull um, with Vettel, it was less easy to point to one thing and say, if we take away that particular gizmo or that particular thing, your advantage will go. Um, okay, well, just to remind us of the, because I'm, I'm, ve- I'm very young, Peter. Um, <laughs> by the way, everyone, do go and look up the active suspension Williams. You you won't regret looking that up. Um, the Ferrari one, oh, this hurts. Do you know what? This is the time that I was most or least in love with Formula One. I, like, I'm a 42-year-old yeah. just for now. How, how old are you, Peter? I'm 44. 44. Oh, what an old, what an old turnip you are. Okay, so very similar ages. So um, I, I enjoyed watching F1 in my childhood a lot. But this Ferrari period of domination in my 20s, when, to be fair, I was traveling a lot as well. But in, in a time in my life where it was harder to make the time to watch F1, Schumacher was ruining it. The Ferrari domination <laughs> ruined F1. And I, I would say this is where I had the era where I had most in-race naps, I would say for sure, because you were hoping at the lights, could something bad happen to Schumacher and the Ferraris? No, it didn't. Sigh, have a little nap, check in at the end. Uh, but yeah, but this is an example where you're saying, you know, there was no magic bullet that you could say, right, take take away their their uh, third, their extra accelerator pedal and they won't do exactly. as well. Exactly. So, I mean, 2000 was actually quite a close championship. Um, you had that wonderful race at um, Spa, for example, which Hakkinen won with that incredible overtake on... Uh, oh, past Zonta. Ricardo Zonta. Yeah. Zonta was, Zonta was also of- there. <laughs> To, to get past Schumacher. But so that you had quite a close season in 2000, particularly because um, Ferrari almost choked. And I think it was Schumacher as well. Like, you know, after so many years, they were like, good car, we should win this. And they almost threw it away mid-season. Um, it, it's absolutely fascinating to watch. But they, they got their act together. They won. 2001, it was almost like on the back of all that effort, 2001, there was an advantage. The car was head and shoulders better than uh, anything else. McLaren threatened for a bit. Um, but never consistently um, applied pressure. And then 2002 was the first time we saw domination similar to what we're seeing from Max and Red Bull this year. Yeah, And that had a similar effect. I mean, you were talking about viewing figures at the weekend and yeah. how in America they seem to have declined quite a bit. Um, there was a similar thing, particularly when you think that everyone then is watching it through traditional TV networks. 
and they could see there was a bit of a drop-off. So in 2003, you couldn't point to one particular thing on that Ferrari. What they did was change a few things around. One was to say, we're going to ban all year round as much as you can eat testing, oh, which is what Ferrari had. Yes. Hang on, have... Yeah, it's, it's, it's really easy to forget that they used to have unlimited testing, unlimited engines, unlimited tyre. There was never any of these considerations, unlimited money. And like, so if you look at things like cost cap, engine restrictions, right. testing restrictions, it's really interesting to go, oh, where did that come from? So I had not quite pieced that together in my head that the reason they have limited testing now would that was that because Ferrari had that Maranello test track and they just felt that that was a big advantage to be constantly having access to testing? Well, they had their own private track and then they also seemed, or certainly from the days when I'd look at this in autosport, it seemed like every week there was a Ferrari team a test team solely did testing that seemed to be parked at Mugello doing lap after lap after lap. Um, And they would just be there. Yeah, they'd still be testing even when the race team was out. You'd have this test team there testing new parts, testing new systems. Let's see if this front wing works. Let's see if this little bit of body work. Um, There was even one time, this is back in the days when Monaco was on a Thursday free practice. Friday was off so you could go and party. Then Saturday was um, qualifying. Schumacher would go to Thursday practice, then fly to Mugello, do a load of testing at Mugello on Friday, then come back for the Saturday. Mate, um, mad. They were testing to that level. They weren't the only ones as well. I mean, McLaren and others did a lot of this as well, but the point was was that you could no longer pound around doing endless tyre testing um, and perfecting it. I mean, you can imagine the cost of this. Um, not to mention how... T- I mean, we talk now about, you know, 20-odd races being a drain on the team. Imagine if you've then got teams all around the world in warmer climes doing their testing so when we were talking about okay you've got uh, uh an active aero you've got frick like like mercedes had with a hydraulic suspension right t- mm. we, we can take that thing away that's very clearly targeting one team so the choice always when someone has that innovation is either ban that innovation let that innovation run a little bit and then ban it. So give it a bit of notice. So they still get the advantage from doing it. Or with like the double diffuser, you go, okay, we'll keep it. But it's clear that other teams are also going to develop it. So you just, you had an early advantage, but now you really? you lose it, Braun. So those are all much more obvious that look, yes, Mercedes, Red Bull, uh, Braun, you, you came up with something, we're taking it away. When it comes to something like this, like testing, it's much easier to go, no, we're just changing something generally. Oh, does it happen to right. affect the team that's been dominating more? You know, and I, I think that's a, a lot what happened with right. the 2022 regulations. I think that were meant to come in in 2021. But a lot yes. of those regulations, oh, look, it just, oh, did it, it just happen to not go the way of, of Mercedes and, and level things out? So how how do you feel? I'm asking a lawyer here about morals, but... Where do you feel that option morally sits, you know, because it is targeting one, but it's almost like it's not honestly targeting a team, if that makes sense. Well, no, those big regulation changes, um, so like 2009 and 2022, were a long time being worked on. And ultimately, it was Mercedes, along with the other teams, contributed to the, um, the, the new regulation package in the same way they contributed to the 2017 overhaul and the introduction of the hybrids in 2014. So it, that's while those are large changes, almost like change the iteration of Formula One um, when they come in, uh, 
yes, it will throw all the pieces in the air. Sometimes it will be that team that had an advantage that then loses it. Um, but it doesn't necessarily always happen. I mean, you look at, so, okay, Mercedes had those three years of pushing dominance, 2014 to 16. 2017, the advantage was nowhere near as big as it was. You look then at 2017, 2018, yeah, yeah. that's more a team and driver at the top of their game than fending off what was actually a very strong challenge from Ferrari. And everyone, I think, was very critical of Ferrari, but I think it was Vettel hugging and puffing, try and drag Ferrari to being competitive. And just ultimately the team and driver cracking under the pressure. But we got to see brilliant sporting contests in those years. So I think when you look at it on paper and you think, oh, well, it was just Mercedes winning for the, the you know almost a whole decade. Well, it wasn't really. We actually had some really good racing during that period. Uh, well, yes. And, and the, obviously 2014, 2015, 2016, Nico Rosberg was there to make it interesting as well. Um, I think what, what hurt, though, was after that Ferrari challenge and they got nerfed because they were allegedly definitely running way more fuel flow than they were allowed somehow. Um, come allegedly. at me. Come at me, Ferrari. No, we're saying, I'm saying they did it. <laughs> so, uh, right. Uh, obviously, that nerfed their 2019 challenge. And then 2019, yeah. 2020, Mercedes were basically dominant. And then this time, Lewis Hamilton was very comfortable in his skin at Mercedes. Very clear number one driver. They were very clearly, you know, they'd spent years developing towards him by that point as well. Bottas, I don't mm. think, stood a chance. So I think that's what hurt from a regular regular regulator point of view and a fan point of view. Yeah. They go, oh, we, we've just had Mercedes domination and now we've got it again. And I, I think that's why that's why the Mercedes one hurt because it was it's just a pure span of time. It, it did. And I think that's as why, why as well we have to remember that there was that slight regulation change from 20 to 21 that out of everyone, it, that seemed to be deliberately targeted at, um, you know, a, any car with a three-pointed star powering it. <laughs> I thought um, you were going to say and, right uh, height then, but yes. Yeah. Yeah, be- because, it, you know, they li- they literally went, we'll get rid of DAS, which was the um, the, the driver uh, interconnected um, front wheel, whereby you, you yeah. move your steering wheel and that moves your tyres, which affect, I think it was a key part of how they'd get the tyres warmed up, both for, for qualifying and... Um, during race stints, so that was yeah. gone. Yeah, and there was a slight aero change, just affecting um, the aero in front of the rear wheels, that seemed to not bother any of the cars that were running with the um, uh, the heavy rake Red Bull model. Rake is that, what I meant, not ride height. Yeah, yeah, it only seemed to penalise the cars with a long wheelbase, which that year was Mercedes <laughs> and, uh, and Aston Martin, yes. and that then meant that Mercedes had a real fight on their hands, and. Let's not go down the, the 20, 21 rabbit no, hole. No, hey, hey. Remember what? how poor Mercedes' performance was in the middle of that year. Mm. That's where that championship was lost. If you look at Austria um, in particular, that was where the real damage was done. So I, I don't think that's a crazy... People will point at that as a conspiracy. But on, but honestly, like with all these conversations we've had, that seems like one of the smartest regulation changes to deliberately equalise the field. And that doesn't seem... Uh, you know, it didn't seem like terrible. They didn't nerf Mercedes to the back of the grid. But from a sporting point of view earlier, would Mercedes have a leg to stand on to kind of go, hey, that's not fair? Or do you think after eight years of, of pretty steady being at the top, they go, no, no, fair play, fair enough. Or were they promised, I don't know, a bigger share of the marketing or a bigger executive box in, in Vegas? Um, I don't think it's necessarily, a, I mean, 
Yeah, do, do we know exactly what payments are made to all the teams? Well, no, because that's a wonderful confidential arrangement. Is it? Um, so there could be things buried in there. But, but to be honest, I, I think that um, when you've enjoyed your period of domination, you should expect there to be a little mm. bit of regulatory change. Um, it, it can be difficult to see what that will be. I mean, we were talking about 2003 there and Ferrari. One of the big changes they did, that, I mean, and this affected everyone, was just to change how the points were awarded. So it used to be you'd only get points from one to six. Yep. So imagine that, one point for sixth place. A driver gets sixth place now, and we're cheering them to the rafters, saying, oh, I had a really good weekend <laughs> It there. used to be glorious, uh, didn't it? It used to be, yeah, yeah. getting that final point. Whereas, whereas uh, now, you know, sixth, po- sixth place is actually seen as a, as a really good, oh, you've had a really strong weekend there. They've, put, they've come home in sixth and seventh mm-hmm. place, and you're like, I'm, I'm still from the school of thought. You're thinking that they've they've literally got one. I, well, know, I tell you what, I, I'm old like you as well, but... I still, because I, I don't mind a little flutter on F1, I've still very much got in my head top six and actually bookies still mm. offer to bet on a driver top six as standard. And so that's, I think that's a very generational thing where I go, oh, I fancy them for a top six, whereas it doesn't really make any sense anymore. Um, but you know what? I, I agreed. I agree with with nerfing them back. And I, if I was F1 in 2020 and you go, oh, I've had all these years of Mercedes domination, I, I would be getting everyone together and going like this isn't good this isn't actually now we're not getting to the point where you're getting any more benefit from it really if if, if the whole ship is sinking if the whole tide is lowering then you know everyone's suffering and and if anything they probably left it a bit long with mercedes whereas now we're looking at red bull and you go well if we did the same there and we're going to go okay well red bull are going to dominate this season probably next season 2025 and then they've got a real good shout of of coming up in the 2026 regulations and being great as well. So we could be looking at another eight years of a, of a team dominating. Why should it be different this time? You know, why should we now look at a Red Bull and go, well, we should nerf them? And the answer is going to come from the viewing figures being that sinking tide that we're, right. that we're sort of talking about. So how, how long do you let that go on if, if it's hurting F1? Well, as I say, I'd, they tend to sort of leave it for sort of two to three years, and then you you can see. I mean, each year there's always a slight change to the regulations. Something is is done. Sometimes it's just on the grounds of um, on the grounds of safety. Um, but I think we'll probably see before that big regulatory change that we we, we know is going to be on the way in 2026. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me if some measures are taken. I mean, I, I think the it's probably no longer possible that that ship has sailed to do that now to no. try and affect next year. They could do, a, again, a sporting change. I mean, I'll say 2003 went from points for the top six to points for the top eight and closed up the gap between first and second place. The idea being that if you've got a regular points finisher getting a podium, they can hopefully stay in touch with a runaway winner. Arguably, you could rejig the points again, particularly if we get, say, uh, an Andretti or AN other teams team or teams coming in. I know you're a big supporter of that. Um, so imagine if we yep. get that bigger grid. 30 car say, grid. 22, 24, 26 cars. 30. Arguably, it would make sense to say we're actually going to have, say, points to the top 12 or top 14. Yeah. I mean, they do that in British touring cars. I think IndyCar, you, you might get more than 10, the top 10 finishers getting points. So it, it wouldn't be um, outside of the realm's possibility to do that. But you, in the process, you could try and tweak the points so that you can still stay in touch even if you aren't necessarily winning races. Yeah, but they're not going to now turn around and just, you know, say you're only allowed half a rear wing now, which is, you know, they're not going to now look at a specific area where Red Bull are very, very strong and go, right, 
we now need the noses to fit this dimension, not this dimension. Um, but all, the, the problem is in this current regulation is there's less room for a team to turn up with a double diffuser or, as you put in your, your notes here, like a Brabham fan car and just go boom. Yeah. Now, there's no magic bullet under the cost cap. Uh, no, there isn't. Um, and uh, you, you're quite right. The, the regulations are now so tight that the scope for that sort of innovation is very n- narrow. When you look at all of the cars on the grid, you're trying to actually find anything that's different. I actually applauded Mercedes for trying to do something different with the zero pod design, which I know was very unpopular with many people. But it's like, <laughs> otherwise, you take the paint off all the cars, they look identical. And that's because of the way the regulations are drafted so tightly. You, you look at the grid 30, 40 years ago, and you've got loads of different types of designs on there as different engineering teams come up with their different solutions. But you had a, a generally more open regulatory environment yeah. oh, God. to be able to Did do they? that. Did they ever? Uh, give, uh, give us an introduction to the Brabham fan car to, to some of the, <laughs> the newer F1 fans. Oh, this is hilarious. So this is at the period of sort of in the mid to late 70s. You've got ground effect being developed. Um, Gordon Murray, who went on to design the McLaren F1 road car, which is still, I think, is like the fastest performance vehicle on on the road. Um, When he was designing for Brabham F1 team, at the time owned by one Bernard Eccleston. um, Love that guy. They turned up at the Swedish Grand Prix, literally with a massive fan on the back of the car. Seriously, Google it, Brabham fan car. Literally, yeah, they they literally it was the precise same dimensions as a bin lid, so they covered it with a <laughs> with like a, you know, your, your plastic bin lid um, during uh, when it was in the pits, and it, they just take the bin lid off and send it out there. And of course, um, this fan, in a very literal sense, just sucked the car onto the track. Now there is a regulation out there, and there had been there was then, and I think there still is now, that you can't have a movable aerodynamic device. Now, surely having a massive great fan on the back. Uh, reaches that. But that rule was there before the Swedish Grand Prix. So everyone expected the stewards to take, what, to take one look and go, no, you're not having that. But they didn't. So it was found to be legal. It raced. And I, I think Nicky Lauda was, again, trying not to win by too great a margin. You don't want to sort of rub the opposition's nose in it sort of thing. So yeah, he's, he's not, he's not really doing anything. Race. Yeah, it's barely helping, this gigantic <laughs> fan. So basically the fan would... would act like a vacuum cleaner it's just sucking out the air from underneath the car and just yeah. and just pinning the car to the ground that why yeah. don't why don't f1 have something like that like on purpose that'd be a great way to have aero because would you have aero wash or would a dirty great big fan blowing out the back make it harder to follow yeah i'm thinking it would make it even more difficult to follow <laughs> if, if you get this massive wash now just from having massive great wings on the front imagine what you'd get from in effect a huge propeller um, I think there were probably, if we think, though, hmm, could be safety issues if, if there was a crash and there was a massive um, propeller churning. Um, not to mention, I mean, ground effect was banned in the early 80s originally with those big moving side skirts because it was leading to a lot of crashes where you've got cars going ridiculously fast. They lose that downforce and they literally become a massive flying oh, you wing. Can just imagine it. Which like... would, thankfully, mm. that hasn't happened with this generation of cars um, because they, their ground effect operates in a different way. Um, but the, the point with the fan car, though, is that so they win this race, and then literally Brabham said, yeah, we, we won't race that anymore, and just voluntarily, without being asked, then just didn't decide to race it anymore. Mm. Um, perhaps I, with an eye to the fact that if they didn't, all that would happen is the other teams would think, oh, we'll fit a massive great fan to the back of our cars as well. It would act like a wood chipper to like, local wildlife as well. Mummy, look at that sweet little bunny on the... Ah! 
and then tears. But yeah, uh, you can imagine that being a yeah, like a vacuum wood chipper. Uh, yeah, uh, you see, yeah. Eccleston there ends up yeah. basically owning and running F1 as the commercial rights holder with CVC. So he's got half an eye when he's racing about the whole interest because he's going to have skin in the game later. And that's yeah. an accusation that gets leveled at Toto Wolf quite a lot. Is that is he purely, and I'm not asking you to speculate, but I'm just saying that that gets leveled at Toto Wolf. Like, is he a future Bernie Eccleston? So he's not necessarily always looking at Mercedes only interest. Uh, and so if it comes to like, well, you've been dominating for, for eight years, this isn't good for F1. You know, if he's got a plan to to be a future Bernie to to take over from Liberty one day, then yeah, that's that could be a similar scenario. Watching Pete's eyes, watching Pete's eyes. <laughs> um, possibly, but I think in I think with any of the team bosses now, that they are totally their total focus is on the ongoing success and performance of their teams. Mm. If only because they know that there's, you can't do, as Bernie did, you can't start running things while still owning and running your team. You know, he, he was setting up the Formula One Constructors Association and starting his sort of political life to the top while he was still um, owning Brabham. Uh, now they've, or, you know, Liberty made it quite clear they wouldn't recruit someone to, right. say, the Stefano Domenicali role um, who had the previous year been running a team. I mean, Domenicali was out of um, Frontline F1 for a number of years. Um, and uh, I think a period of gardening leave would be required by all of the other teams before they would allow right. one of their number to potentially then sort of step into that role again. Okay. Just because I think there would be simply too much of a conflict of interest otherwise. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts, they said, What the f? Are you talking about you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from thirty dollars a month to just fifteen dollars a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. Forty five dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited, more than forty gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Speaking of conflict of interest, it's very hard for me to advocate that the F that the FIA or F1 should do something now specifically to stop Max Verstappen dominance when I'm a, a fully outed Lewis Hamilton fan. So, but I do think that this is the wasted opportunity. We talked about this, uh, you know, a couple of a couple of weeks back. It's it's just such a shame that they had so much interest in the US, and the US uh, has been you know the prettiest girl at prom for F1 for years, and we finally plucked up the courage to go and ask America to come and dance with us. And they did. And the first dance was great. But now it's like, 
uh, it's really kind of just awkward drum and bass and we're just standing there pumping our arms and flailing around and they're losing interest. But these things are cyclical. I think that, because you, you reported at the, the weekend about the fact, okay, that there may have been a decline in the figures in the US. To be honest, that would always have happened. You were never going to get Formula One's thing at the sustained level of com- competition and performance that we saw in 2021 in particular. I mean, that, that was a one-off season. Incredible to watch, not knowing who's going to win each weekend. Um, we had not had that at that level for for a very long time. And so, yeah, you, there was always going to be a year of one or one team running away with it, perhaps not quite to this level, admittedly. But like you said, we had this with Mercedes. We had this with Ferrari. So it's great that America is more cognizant of Formula One, more than it has ever been. Um, you know, I, I'm speaking to um, my wife is from the States, so I've got a lot of friends and I see all the stuff they're posting on Facebook in the States. There is a lot more traction and awareness around what's happening in Formula One and other forms of motorsport uh, than I've I've ever seen before. Mm. The fact that you've now got more American races on the back of this will mean that, I think, support from public in, in America will remain at a much higher level than it was pre-Drive to Survive and pre-Liberty. Um, and also that applies to a lot of other markets because you have to remember now that we it's a very different demographic. You know, like you keep saying, there'll be a, a lot of people um, listening to uh, to this, uh, regular Mr. Apex listeners and also those who are watching Formula One who are, you know, far younger. And 10, 15 years ago, Formula One's problem was it was not attracting new fans. It was retaining people like you and me who were getting progressively older, but it wasn't <laughs> attracting new people to it because yeah. it wasn't seen as engaging. Um, whereas it is now because... Netflix has made it accessible. I think, I think they're going to do something. I think they're going to chuck something cheeky in there. Okay, I think the pressure that Liberty are feeling, so from the FOM broadcaster side, yes. I, I, I bet that behind the scenes they are livid. I bet behind the scenes they're panicking, and that some there's going to be some cheeky little thing that's going to be. Oh, this is just a generic change, something like your your testing hours thing. That's what I think. I think towards the end of the yeah. year or over the winter break, there's, something's going to get thrown up because I, I think that this time round, it's going to feel more desperate to, to change. Well, there's two things they can do. One that wouldn't require any sort of lead time, they could just do this based on, on a vote of the World Motorsports Council, would be changing the points. That's an easy one to do. Award points, instead of it being from top 10 to top 12, even top 14, if you want then it gets to the point that if you, if you finish, you get a point. Maybe not that. But certainly, I think it's a case to say the top 12 finishes. Because um, it's so competitive all the way down. There's all that fight. It then makes it even more of a race. So I can see them doing that. The second thing you could do, which would be a little bit more controversial, and possibly, as I say, because of the fact that the designs of the cars are now so advanced already mm-hmm. for next year. Though, so I don't know if you could do it for next year or not. But the a straightforward thing to do would be to ban DRS. Do we Completely, completely. That would be, I think that would be interesting, but, you know, Verstappen's normally ahead anyway and and isn't using the DRS. But that would be an interesting one because they definitely do get an advantage of that. So when things go wrong and they're stuck in the middle field, that is much less of a problem for them to to come through. And and that does kind of make it very inevitable that they're going to end up winning. Uh, Peter, this has been... And absolutely fantastic, not just like insight into the legal side of it and, and asking the moral question. We got an opportunity to play, well, you are FOM. 
you are the FIA. I think the FIA would, would leave it alone forever. I think the FIA would just let it run. I think it is the, the broadcasters, the commercial rights holders. So, I, you know, I'm, I'm betting ESPN is out there putting pressure on Liberty, who's putting pressure on the FIA. This is all guesswork from me. But, yeah, that's that's the kind of chain I'm going down. But from a sporting point of view, you know, the, the FIA um, is, is probably fine with what's happening now. But I can't let you go as a special, super special lawyer man without just getting a touch into the Massa stuff. So if you've got a few minutes, Peter, just want to ask you, will Massa win his court case and be crowned the rightful 2008 champion? Questions to which the answer is no. Oh, okay. I think I think he should be. He was robbed. No. Um, yeah, we went through. Well, I mean, we went through the the detailed arguments at length. No. But just you know, he's obviously hired a legal team. They've come out with very strong statements. Is is it is it quite a common legal thing to kind of posture like this going into a case? Yes, um, I think we have to remember as well that he's not looking to literally take Lewis Hamilton's first world championship away from him. He's looking for a financial settlement from the FIA to basically, and to this, and this is the interesting point. He's making a claim, going to court and saying, "I should have been world champion. Here is the evidence that that race should have been annulled because of the um, uh, Crashgate incident, and therefore that would have made me world champion." So, if we then extrapolate from there, if I'd been world champion since two thousand and eight. I would have had the following commercial opportunities and endorsements. My career would have turned out in a different way. And therefore, I would have been entitled to so many million on the basis of being world champion. And the bit that I really struggle with is that it's not as though you can point to say, ah, being world champion would give you, say, an extra $50 million. Because, I mean, look at Nico Rosberg. He won his world championship and then retired. Um, so you can't look at his post-World Championship career and say, oh, well, you're entitled to whatever Nico Rosberg earned because <laughs> he wasn't even ru- racing. I'm sure he's done some commercial things. He's had his Formula E team. He's done all these different things. I know it's extreme that he's in, isn't it? But yeah. which, whichever way, um, you know, are, are you comparing it to that? Are you comparing him to, let's think of another um, one-time world champion. Are you comparing yourself to Jensen Button? He had his title and then another um, still went on to, to, to be in Formula One for quite some time. Where I think the argument falls to the ground is that it's not like, you know, Massa was then, his Formula One career fizzled out or something. He stayed for a number of years at Ferrari. He would have been on good money there. He then went to Williams. He would have been on good money there, paid for through the Martini sponsorship. Um, so he had a good, long Formula One career. And I think it's difficult to argue that career would have been extended beyond um, that that point. Um, so you can arguably say, well, look, you, you still proceeded to make an awful lot of money out of Formula One. Yeah. But the thing that the court would find, even if... I don't think the court can do this because of the point that Matt made that um, no race has ever been annulled in the way that they seem no. to be thinking it can be done. But even if you did that and the court said, well, if you, we, 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 we think that you should have won the championship, where's the loss? How can we quantify that loss? How do you get the quantum to say, well, this is what you're now entitled to? And I, I think it's, it's, it's simply a, a, an impossible um, thing to properly quantify and put a figure on. And when, when all you're doing is claiming for compensation to put you in the position you would otherwise have been in if you'd won the championship, yeah, you simply what, can't do it. What, what contract did you not get? Like you were you were still at, at Ferrari for a long time. Yeah, I just it, do. You know what? Overall, like it's just not cool. Like it's a bad vibe, isn't it? Bad vibe. The whole thing. I I, I think he's been badly advised. Um, I mean, you see now, ex drivers end up still making a lot of very often a lot from commercial opportunities, being in the paddock, 
um, you know, st- still being invited back to different things, doing work with broadcasters, sponsors. And I think actually doing this, he's almost jeopardizing some of that. And I, I think that is quite short-sighted because, I mean, you, look, you know, a driver like Damon Hill won his championship in 1996. He's still here telling us exactly what he thinks and, <laughs> and, um, and doing very well from that. Um, and there's no reason why Massa wouldn't be doing that for the um, for the for the Brazilian market. Um, should we be able to continue with that? But I think some of his international exposure actually he he is actually harming his yeah. his ongoing career in that regard and and legacy a little bit. I think yeah. Peter Wright, thank you so much for for your time. We must make your appearances more more regular because that little journey back into the the history of F1 there. Actually, I had, I had a smile on my face even when you were talking about the horrible. Schumacher bit where they just ruined F1 for a sustained period of time Um, but go and follow Peter Wright in the link in the show notes below and thank you very much for your time Pete. Thank you Okay, let's take a break from those wranglings, those legal ramifications of team domination. Let's think no more of the domination of Schumacher, Verstappen and Lewis Hamilton and pay attention to the new shiny thing that is coming up over the horizon. And that is the Las Vegas Grand Prix. Is it going to be a jewel in the crown or is it going to be a stone in the rough? Well, to get me clued in, on all things shiny in Vegas is Magnus Greaves from Race Weekend Magazine. How's it going, Magnus? Doing fantastic. Thanks for having me back. No, it's great. I love having you on. Firstly, not only because you send me lovely copies of your shiny Race Weekend Magazine, which make me look like a posh slash middle class F1 fan. So when people come around, we have your glorious A3 full double page spreads things out for people to to look through and i just look like the kind of classy guy who has that kind of magazine well they, that that's our intention to make uh, to, to make you look a bit more cultured in the f1 space <laughs> that is what it makes me look like um and uh, are you going to get angry with me i've actually like i've cut out quite a few of the things to put them up in various places well, it's funny, actually. People have asked us if we would send them two copies, one that they could, you know, with, with perforated images <laughs> and to one put on the wall and the other one to keep on the coffee table. So one... we need to look into that. Yeah. So I, I felt like a little kid because it's the first time I've put anything up since I took out the the double-page middle spread of the Daily Telegraph of Jos Verstappen when he had uh, the fuel spill on him in a pit lane oh, exactly. in, during a fuel stop, and then it ignited. The so he was just in a ball of flames. That's the last F1 thing I'd put up in a room until I mutilated your magazine. You, 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 haven't, you haven't photoshopped Max onto that photo, I hope. I know what you like. <laughs> no, 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 not at all. Not at all. I, I like Max Verstappen. I, I would consider myself a fan. Um, but, and, as someone, oh. and as someone who tells the truth all the time, I'm going to tell you the truth that the Las Vegas Grand Prix is something that I'm cynical of. And I know there's a lot of excitement around it. There's a huge amount of money behind it. I, I'm, I'm betting Liberty will want it to, to work and, and are pouring emotional and financial energy behind it. I don't know why it's not captivating me at the moment. Is it? Is it because, you know, I'm a Brit and I've, somehow I'm immune to the, the magic that Vegas holds, I think, in American culture. Like, if this was the Blackpool Grand Prix, maybe I'd be feeling differently. Well, I, listen, I, I think there's two two issues here. The first one is that in spite of 
Formula One and Liberty doing an amazing job of of securing this race, which is an incredible task that can't be underestimated. They've done a really, really poor job of actually marketing it. And I think what they've done, which they have a tendency to do with all U.S. races, is that they focus on the sort of common tropes and stereotypes. So all you're seeing are bedazzled jackets and (laughs) what happens on the strip. In the same way that every Formula One driver has to put on cowboy boots and a cowboy hats for Austin, even though we've been going there for 10 years, and then tropical print shirts for, for Miami. So I think that they've, they're, they're, they're playing on uh, a very narrow set of stereotypes, which doesn't do justice to actually how amazing it is to be in Las Vegas. Um, and, and the second thing is there's a, Understandably, a lot of focus on how expensive the tickets are for the Las Vegas Grand Prix. They're yeah, yeah. by far the most expensive anywhere. Mm-hmm. But I think that the way I look at it is that those expensive tickets are are underwriting what is about to be the first and only year-round Formula One destination. There is a $700 million building that's there uh, that is going to be there year-round, and so much is going to come with that. Wait. How can you have a year-round F1 destination? Because as, as far as I'm aware, like nothing really like that exists. So you could argue that Silverstone needs the Grand Prix to fund a bunch of other stuff. But what on earth do you mean by an all-round? Because you, you saying that—that's the first time I've heard anything about that. Yeah, well, and listen, I'm down. I go down there tomorrow. I'm down there every couple of weeks, and so I see what's happening. But you have to first understand what Las Vegas is now, right? I think a lot of people have a sort of outdated view of Las Vegas. You go down, you go to a show, blah, blah, blah. Every entertainer is setting up these sort of residencies there and 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 everything now, the infrastructure in Las Vegas is such that everything is being set up so that these people, the half million people that come every weekend and the half million people that come every Monday for the week uh, have everything to go and visit to keep them entertained and keep them coming back. So with Formula One, you now have this, I mean, the, the paddock building is unbelievable. It is massive. It's in a great location. And they're going to be using that year round for different events. So it doesn't disappear. It's a massive structure. They're going to be hosting all sorts of, um, it's going to be a sort of a, a venue. It's going to have other things that people can come and, and do year round. But also, if you look at the F1 exhibition, which is just shut down in uh, or is shutting down in Spain, I'm sure that the next venue for that is going to be Las Vegas. If you look at the F1 arcade that is in London yeah. and setting up initially in Boston, not sure why Boston, definitely there's going to be one of those in in Las Vegas and and more and, and more to boot. Las Vegas is such a sophisticated, coordinated entertainment infrastructure that once here's the other thing i don't as much as the casinos are investing in this race i don't think they fully understand how amazing this thing is going to be until they see it and then they're going to then they're going to be creating their own uh f1 related venues and experiences for people to come and visit on a year-round basis as well okay so what we're doing is we're building a picture of of going to that place and being good so like if i go to vegas for the race, I'm going to have a great time, and that's what they're focusing yes. on. Even when it's not the race, I can still have my F1 arcades, presumably somewhere to watch other Grand Prix around the world. Uh, the concern is, I guess it's not a concern for them at all, is does it become another Monaco or Miami when we watch it on telly? Uh, 
Well, it's possible. You know, I mean, it's hard to create a, a great street track. I will say that the, you know, I, when I watch a race from home and I'm not there, one thing I like is to sort of be excited about the the visuals. So at least with my with with Monaco, it makes me think about Monaco, which is not a bad thing. <laughs> yeah. You're looking at the harbor, you're looking at the boats, you look at the, you know, all these beautiful things. The casino, Las Vegas is gonna have. It's gonna be at night. It's gonna have the fountains. It's gonna have the sphere. Which, by the way is one of the most unbelievable things that I've ever seen, this this MSG sphere that is, oh, you know, yes. I don't know if you've seen it. I saw it, yeah, it's like a big dome <laughs> with um, with pixels all over it, so they can make it look like whatever they want. I, I saw it, it's, it looked like a giant basketball, like a really realistic basketball. So it, it, it's an eyeball, it's a basketball, mm. it's all sorts of different things, and it sounds kind of corny when, you, when you're when no. you first told about it, no. but to see it in person... Truly stunning. <gasps> that's definitely so going to be have a, that is one of the backdrops as well. That's got to be a helmet. Surely it's going to be a race driver. Well, it's, it's a helmet. Yeah, it's yeah, got to yeah, be a good. helmet. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, okay. So, uh, I mean, what Formula E does though, for, and I'm not trying to slate Formula E, but they they put these barriers up around the track, so every track kind of looks the same, and and you get that effect in in Singapore as well. Night race in Singapore. But when you watch it on TV, you get no flavor of of the city. Every Formula E race looks exactly the same. You know, they had Rome, and what did you see of Rome? You saw nothing. And even when you're at the track in Formula E, they 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 wall it off so that you have to sit in specific areas of you know of a grandstand where they've sold the ticket. So there's there's a few issues there. Like, firstly, they've got to avoid that trap of just turning the circuit mm-hmm. into you know a fenced off bunch of walls. So when you're looking at the onboard, all you're just seeing is you know, catch fence, uh, but also for the people there. I mean, I've heard stories that if certain hotels didn't pay up, they were going to erect barriers to, to like block off the hotel's view. So, so the the Grand Prix is partners with the different hotels, um, the sort of three main hotel groups down there. So all the casinos are are in on it, but there's different restaurants that end up having their own access to to where the circuit will be. Uh, Formula One put some kind of silly proposal that they had to pay $1,500 a head multiplied by their maximum capacity. So venues would end up spending millions of dollars and it would be impossible for them to host people. But the last thing I heard was that they came to some sort of resolution and they have to pay $50,000 kind of token fee. But that would have just been a ridiculous proposal. But again, I think think there's going to be some amazing uh, seating options for people that are there. But looking to the majority of people that are going to be watching another race. Again, there's a reason they call Las Vegas the entertainment capital of the world. And as competitive as all these casinos are with each other, they also know, you know, when they need to come together and and and, and work together. And so the 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 visuals that will be coming from the different hotels and casinos that it passes by, you know, as I said, like the just the fountains alone at night lit up are going to be spectacular. So I think I think the visual feast for for those of us watching on TV is going to be incredible. I've never seen this much going into a particular race. So when uh, we went to Miami before the inaugural race there, and we were working with uh, the promoters to put together a guide, it was amazing to see the enthusiasm and how everybody was sort of mobilizing uh, to to participate. All the different restaurants and clubs and shops and everything else. Las Vegas is that times 10 because the venues are bigger and there's more of a sort of coordinated effort. The other thing is when it went from being a three-year race to a 10-year race. They've got a 10-year contract. It, 
it's a 10 year contract. Right. And what happens then is you, you companies and people and, and, and everybody around there invests in the race that much more. So it's not like it's a one-off and you're not sure how long it's going to stick around. They know it's a 10 year opportunity. It is, it is tracking to be probably the most profitable weekend that they've ever seen, which gives them even more incentive to invest. But also that investment is there for that weekend, but it's also there for, 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 for experiences and shops and boutiques and restaurants and bars that it will be around the F1 theme on a year round basis. So I think, I think the race will be a success, but I think if they handle it correctly, what happens between the races will be an even bigger success. And that is an opportunity that is unique to Las Vegas. And it's in Las Vegas is a city that most, well, most people in North America will visit, you know, Las Vegas any given year or, do or every two years. Even not from the US. I, I do feel like it's got that international appeal where I go, well, I should go. I should go to Vegas like once. Well, and if you look at, the, the big UFC fights. I used to love this when Conor, Conor McGregor would fight in in uh, in in Las Vegas, and you'd get that huge Irish contingent that would come, and it would take over the whole venue. And so, yeah, I I think that you're going to get a, a sense of that with with the race as well. It, it's such an international destination, and this is such a special place to watch that race. It, it's funny. At first, I was quite skeptical of it. But going down there as much as I have been, and we're working in partnership with uh, the Wind Casino, uh, and and every time I go down, I also look outside of the the Strip. And one of the one of the coolest features I think about Las Vegas is that they have so many racetracks there, and uh-huh. and so many tracks. Like we've gone to this place called Speed Vegas, where you can rent any type of supercar, and and do laps around this track. There's a, a high level um, karting track as well. There's an off-road track where you can rent like doom buggies and race those and jump those. But unlike, say, Austin, where, okay, you can do that type of thing at Coda any week but the Grand Prix. Because this is a night race in Las Vegas, during the day, there's so many of these types of tracks and experiences where, you know, motorsports enthusiasts can go and and get some laps in themselves. Yeah, I I think you can tell when a venue, when an area F1 goes to, has its own racing pedigree and history. You know, you can go to a track and it can be soulless and you think there's there's some little thing that's missing. And I think that some little thing sometimes is a racing heritage and a racing culture and or a motorsport culture. But at, at Circuit of the Americas, like you feel it. You feel that's a motorsport outfit. Yeah, but the, the the motorsport culture of Las Vegas is actually huge. That's what I'm. Well, that's what's giving me hope. Yeah, then, if you're they, saying they that. have they have they have NASCAR racing, they have uh, the the karting championships. They have the Mint 400, which is this huge desert race. There's all sorts of different types of racing that happens there, which is something that I find really interesting because Formula One kind of is acting like they're the first race to come <laughs> to Las Vegas. They're not. They're the biggest, but there's a lot of different racing events that happen there year round so the 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 locals the fan base people are used to traveling to las vegas to watch uh different motorsports in action and now formula one is taking it to another level but there is a culture of racing there okay okay well i'm you can look i'm i'm chucking these up for you to knock them out of the park but two (laughs) two things going heavily against the inaugural uh, las vegas grand prix firstly championships dead is that is that scuppering you know the the mood (laughs) Yeah, I think definitely 
I mean, I think that's going to affect every race yeah. for he, here going forward or probably uh, going four races back. But yeah, I think that's definitely a, a, a concern. And I think that, that in terms of the what happens on the circuit and the drama, that's not going to be there. I don't think that's going to change the actual experience for those people that show up or, you know, that kind of visual spectacle of watching it on TV. But I think that's always a risk when you're the last race or the next to yeah. last race. Um, and yeah, I think there definitely must be some concern about that with, with, yeah, uh, I'm, I'm thinking with the position in the calendar as the penultimate race, that's probably an expensive slot on the calendar. I'd imagine, you know, because Abu Dhabi, they, they, they didn't get the last race of the season uh, out of, you know, the, the kindness of Eccleston's heart. They've paid for that. Well, yeah, but, but let's remember that no one is paying that fee because this is the one race that Formula One is promoting themselves. Uh, oh, so right. I'd missed that. Totally. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So 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 it's not like somebody sort of disappointed from that perspective. Right. Having okay. Paid I'm with extra you. For that, for that particular okay. slot. Okay. That changes things. All right. So that's that one dampener and knocked out of the park for a, for a home score. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I'm braced because it's a street track at the end of the day. The circuit looks, you know, quite street circuity. I don't yeah. have any high hopes that it's going to be an absolute banger of a, a race from a, a wheel swapping car perspective. And I'm not a fan of street races. I've been very open about that. I would, I'd burn them all. But, you know, so that's the spectacle is going to be doing a lot of heavy lifting over the racing would be my bet. Yeah, I, I think so. And again, it's hard for me to comment on, on, track right on, you know, not just the street race, but, but the first time that they're doing the street race. But, you know, having been to the Singapore Grand Prix, that was one of the most fun experiences I've had in my life, you know, and, and we always, you know, we call ourselves race weekend. One of the things we like to do is analyze what makes for a great race weekend. And one of the key components I feel is the proximity between the race, the circuit and, you know, the best neighborhoods in the city. So if you look at the Miami Grand Prix, I think one of the things that kind of makes it a little bit trickier is that, you know, the, it takes a while to get from the venue on the highway to South beach or to Windwood. But in in Las Vegas, just like in Singapore, you're right amongst all the venues. And so when that night race finishes, you're walking 10 steps and you're inside the best clubs, restaurants, party spots, venues and everything else. So I, I don't know. I think. Uh, do, do you know what, I Magnus? The, you're, yeah. you're monocoing me. You're telling me that I just I just have to be there. And I will try. I, I will try. I do. Listen, and I've said this to you before about Monaco is that. And I know a lot of other people have as well. But to go there, you're going to get a much different feel <laughs> from the yeah, experience, yeah. you know. And 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 I think the same thing will be be, be true of, of Las Vegas. But again, I feel like Las Vegas is this great thing going for it that you can go there in another part of of the year and get a little bit of F1, which I think for all these new American fans is going to, you know, that that honestly are priced out of of going to uh, a race venue during the actual Grand Prix. I think that this could be something that really helps, you know, more people touch the sport. All right. All right. I'll give it, I'll give it the benefit <laughs> of the, the doubt. I think if I have a skepticism, it's only because all other street circuits are rubbish and, and the destination cities just haven't delivered. So I've got my fingers crossed. You know, it, yeah. I, I can't judge the, the track before we've seen cars going around it. It might be an absolute banger, but, or it might turn out to be like the Miami layout. Yeah, I again, I, I it's it's hard, hard to say, hard to say. <laughs> what is easy to say is that you have bullied me in the past 
and the last time we ran a promotion for your magazine, I was like, oh, don't worry about it. We'll just run the thing. And you made me put out an offer code where I would get a commission uh, on the sales, and that was quite a nice amount of money in support of Mr. Apex. So thank you for bullying me into making some money there. And I think we're going to try and for. we're going to try and do it again because uh, we sold a, a lot of units and people really enjoyed it. They enjoyed yeah. the magazine. It's um, A3, isn't it? A3, double page. Yeah, it's 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 fifteen inches by eleven inches, yeah, which big. is huge for huge for a magazine. It's a, and it's it's a big old magazine. It makes your coffee table look posh. We have it on the sideboard. It's um, what do you call it? A conversation piece. Uh, makes an amazing gift. We had our friends come over. We've not seen them for a year. The kid is a a, a crazy McLaren fan. I know, I know, but Lando Norris and <laughs> uh, and we we gave him one of those copies that that you gave us uh, as a birthday present. He's absolutely delighted. And like I said, like I I will call, uh, join the call from future people to have um, the odd perforated one, so so I don't yeah. have to keep mutilating yeah. it. Um, but look, you've got a series of four that's already published and a series of four coming up. So the series yeah. of four that's just been completed is the timeless edition. So uh, tell us about that briefly. Right. So so our approach to making a magazine is a bit different. You know, again, we recognize 99% of fans will never go to an F1 race. They'll never touch F1. So that's why we make a print magazine and we, we focus each issue on a timeless topic. So collection one is Jet Set, which kind of talks about all the different Formula One destinations. Mm-hmm. F1 uh, in the 1970s, which is the coolest looking decade in Formula <laughs> One the history of F1 in, in the USA, and then uh, the most recent one that we printed, which is uh, Formula One World Champions, where we look at the dominant championship car and driver since the 1950s. Uh-huh. Um, so if somebody takes the magazine, as a, a they get all four issues at once. Um, and again, these it doesn't matter when you're introduced to Race Weekend, these topics don't okay. change. And then now we've just announced Collection 2, which we're doing as a pre-order, uh, and we're focusing that on the four big uh, Formula One teams. So Ferrari, Mercedes, McLaren, and Red Bull. Each team is going to get its own special issue. And um, yeah, and it's as you said, it's a it's a huge magazine. Yeah, amazing design from my partner Tom Tom Brown. Loads of amazing photographs and zero advertising. There you go. And it's a yeah, like I said, it makes a good gift. Looks good on your coffee table. And Magnus bullies me into taking a commission if you order it through our link and use the offer code Spanners. 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 Okay. But I'll put all those details in the show notes below. We got great feedback from that last time. So consider it. I'll I'll post some examples of stuff on my Twitter and stuff. Uh, But Magnus, thank you for making me feel slightly, I would say, more open minded about Vegas. I think I think you'll be pleasantly surprised by how successful the event is and how successful the location is and and, and important it becomes Mm. in terms of the overall formula one experience and if it's my it's my home race even though i even though i'm canadian and i love the montreal grand prix uh that's five hours away las vegas is two hours from vancouver so it's my home race as well oh it's actually closer but look also i I think one of the big things is if it's a 10-year deal it's being promoted by liberty media themselves it means yeah. it's not going away, and it means. I mean, my fear is just constantly that this is going to go like live golf. You know, that at some point F one is just going to go. Oh, here's a bunch of uh, you know uh, Middle East money. Uh, uh, we're we're out of here. But a ten year well, investment isn't screaming that, is it? No, I. In fact, I think it could kind of go a different way, where where Formula One sees the value of owning certain races themselves. And the benefit that that brings to them in the sport, not just that weekend, but at other parts of the year, which I think is very much in the fans' best interest. 
So I think that this, if this model is successful, that we could see perhaps a, a, a Liberty-owned race on each continent, which serves as a hub for fans in each of those regions, which would be amazing for, for, for all of us that love Formula One. And if Liberty Media are listening, if you invite me to any of those races, I will say they were good and amazing to be at. I have no morals and I can be easily bought. Magnus, thank you so much yep. for your time. We've got to get you on one of our listener mailbag shows so we can get your, your non-Vegas and non-US hot takes as well. I, w- I would love that. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you very much for your time and join us in the shed very soon. And that's all from Mr. Apex this week. We may have even more bonus content squeezed in for you tomorrow. But if not, we'll see you live at 8 p.m. after the Dutch Grand Prix on Sunday. Until next time, work hard, be kind, and have fun. This was Mr. Apex Podcast. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.